Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm all right. Welcome to episode 19 of uh, Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. 19. I know. How'd we we make it that far? This week, um, as always, we start with a news roundup. Just last night, actually, I was watching, spoiler alert, we record this ahead of time. What? Um, So Tuesday night. My life is a lie. Yes. Um, Tuesday night, I happened to be um, on the internet, as I tend to be, and uh, saw the news break that Chicago, where we've talked rather extensively about the mayor's plan to close 50 public schools, is now asking for proposals for new charter schools, including, according to Chicago residents who were breaking this news to me, in districts where they are currently planning to close the existing public school. Um, This is, of course, part of the ongoing battle over public education in Chicago that started with the, well, it started well before the Chicago Teachers Union strike um, that led to the takeover of the Chicago Teachers Union by the caucus that then led the strike, that then led to the decision to close 50 schools, to the firing of some a couple thousand school employees last month. And this is, of course, appears to be the latest battle because teachers at charter schools cannot be represented by the Chicago Teachers Union. So, of course, this is another step that feels like um, not only a step towards privatizing the entire school district, but sort of feels like a deliberate slap in the face of the union. Karen Lewis said to WBEZ Chicago, um, we are not at all surprised by this. We were called conspiracy theorists. And then here's the absolute proof of what the intentions are. The district has clearly made a decision that they want to push privatization of our public schools. Um, This is, of course, lawsuits are still proceeding to try to stop the school closings, though a judge um, earlier this week denied class action status to parents who had filed two of those lawsuits. The new school year is, of course, starting soon, so these new charter schools will not be opening in time for this school year. But it is interesting to note that the call for new schools is in part to relieve overcrowding, which perhaps would not be a problem if you were not closing 50 public schools. Just a thought. Check out our interview with Karen Lewis in the first ever episode of the Belabored Podcast. Also, you can read it in the current awesome issue of Descent Magazine. In the past week, we saw the formal announcement of something that was first previewed by Mike Elk, the movement of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union from the Change to Win Federation back into the AFL-CIO. Belabored listeners who are not labor internal politics nerds may or may not be aware that The AFL-CIO is the largest union federation in the United States, not, as it's sometimes referred to in the media, the largest union in the United States, but the largest (laughs) union federation. Change to Win is the second largest union federation. It, at its peak, had seven unions, which broke away a little under a decade ago, arguing that they had a better, more aggressive approach to organizing. The union that I used to work for, Unite Here!, went to Change to Win, then went back to the AFL-CIO amid a very ugly battle with SEIU. Change to Win is now down to just three remaining unions with the departure of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. What I found most striking in terms of contrast about the news and the statements as the UFCW has gone back to the AFL-CIO is the niceness, the extent to which everyone is apparently making an effort to 
play well with others. So if you remember the debate that took place in the lead-up to and around the unions going into change to win, you had things like one federation comparing another to Walmart. This time you had Rich Trumka, while welcoming the UFCW and speaking at their convention, saying how he not only respected their decision to come back into the AFL-CIO, but really respected their decision to have left the AFL-CIO. The president of the Teamsters, one of the three unions that's still in Change to Win, is still slated to be speaking to the UFCW at their convention. And more importantly, more substantively, the Change to Win Strategic Organizing Center the body that SEIU president Mary Kay Henry, when I asked her about the UFCW leaving, described as the most important part of Change to Win, not its being a federation per se, but the existence of this space for coordination around organizing, that body will continue to have the UFCW and, according to Henry and other sources, will begin to involve other AFL-CIO unions. And so Organizers from the AFL-CIO Federation will be invited. Other unions from the AFL-CIO will join that table, which is of particular significance for the Walmart campaign, where workers in Walmart retail stores have been organizing through our Walmart, this group very closely tied to the UFCW, while workers in Walmart warehouses have been organizing through this Change to Win project, Warehouse Workers United. And so the prospect of non-cooperation between those two federations would have been not awesome for that campaign. I asked Henry directly whether or not the funding that SEIU provides to warehouse worker organizing would change once the OCW had left this federation in which SEIU is the largest player. She said that it would not, that that funding had just been restored for another two years. So we will see what this all means for coordinated organizing efforts, particularly around a giant like Walmart. As all of this is going on, of course, there are still very nasty fights going on on the ground between unions involved in the AFL-CIO and unions involved in Change to Win. These include fights between unions in the airline industry, the ongoing fight in healthcare between SEIU and NUHW. But again, it is striking compared to the previous decade that everyone at the Union Federation leadership level has very nice things to say about each other. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, We talked about Detroit and the auto industry in episode 16 just a few weeks ago with Marcy Wheeler. But one of the things that we didn't talk about is that the rest of the auto industry, mostly the plants that build Japanese brand cars, is sort of scattered throughout the rest of the U.S., well, and Canada and, of course, Japan. Um, But here it's often in right-to-work states in the South. There is a union drive that we have sort of remarkably not talked about yet on this show. Um, At one of those plants, um, it's a Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi. Roger Bybee at the Huffington Post wrote this week that that plant got $1.33 billion, with a B, in subsidies from the state and is spending that money not on creating the good good wage jobs that it promised of just under $20 an hour, which is pretty good in Mississippi, but instead hiring people to make between $9.25 and $12 an hour. Um, Those subsidies have been calculated in a report by Good Jobs First to be something like $290,000 per job. Be really cool if they were creating $290,000 jobs, but they're not. Uh, 
There's also um, another story at Facing South about the same plant this week, talking to students from nearby colleges and universities who are working closely in solidarity with these workers to support their union drive. And this, the author at Facing South, Joe Atkins, commented that this is sort of different from the good old days that we talked about with Penny Lewis when uh, college students were seen to be at odds with blue-collar workers. But of course, in the South, a lot of the blue-collar workers are going to be African-American. These students are some of them from historically black institutions. And it's interesting to note that Nissan is throwing around some money donating to things like the Murley and Medgar Evers Institute, trying to win some good press and divert attention from their low wages. Um, So, of course, a win in Mississippi, in the heart of the very much union-free Deep South, would be huge for the United Auto Workers after the continued beating they've been taking in Michigan. And the student and popular support is heartening in a part of the country that, like I said, does not really have much of a union culture. Um, Many people have sort of written off right-to-work states, especially in the South, for ages. But, of course, with the passage of right-to-work in Michigan and other northeastern states looking at it, we really have to understand that unions are going to have to be able to organize under right-to-work or unions are going to be doomed. Um, So I am, for one, as a former Southerner, very heartened to see this campaign taking off, and I wish them good luck. This week in Who's the Boss, there was a report in ProPublica by Blair Hickman and Christy Thompson, which pointed out that if you are an unpaid intern, not only are you working without being paid for it, but you also lack sexual harassment protection. This story falls under what friend of the podcast Ned Reznikoff has coined as hashtag everything is horrifying. So (laughs) Hickman and Thompson's story includes a quote from a spokesperson for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission who says, at least with respect to the federal law that we enforce, an unpaid intern would not be legally protected by our laws prohibiting sexual harassment. So by not paying people a wage, by not paying people what the commission refers to as significant remuneration, you not only deny them the money that they need to support themselves, but you also deny them the legal status and legal protection that goes with it. This story references Oregon, the first state, according to Oregon's labor commissioner, to pass a law expanding discrimination and harassment protections for interns to say, even if you're not paying people, it should be also just as illegal to discriminate against them and harass them in the process while they are already doing labor for you without getting paid for it. We will see if this is an area where there is further legal foment. There is also legislation that was extended in Washington, D.C. As the authors of the article point out, this is another argument for paying interns for their work for treating them like the employees that they actually are. Um, Yeah, that's definitely horrifying. So this week, 
Sarah, you had a great piece at In These Times called Opting for Free Time, Something's Missing from the Work-Life Balance Debate. This piece wrestles with some of the important questions that we've talked about in the past on the Belabored podcast. It's, in some sense, a continuation of a discussion that you were pushing in our very own Descent magazine, host of the Belabored podcast. What inspired this piece? So I was thinking about the way that when we talk about work-life balance, we assume that work-life balance for women is time to spend at home with your children, um, as well as time to, of course, be at a paid job. When we talk about it for men, we talk about having time to do other things, right? So we talk about having time to play golf, to go watch sports, to I'm going to just throw out a bunch of male stereotypes here, aren't I? Read a book, whatever. We talk about having time away from work to actually do things. Um, Notably, we don't talk about work-life balance in regards to men very much at all, especially in this country. Um, But when we do, it's a very different conversation than it is for women who are simply assumed to spend all of their free time taking care of children. So one of the things you tackle in this piece is the way that women are constructed in conversation as natural parents, as uniquely fit to take care of children. It it reminded me of Ruth Milkman's discussion about in World War II, the way that suddenly when there was an economic reason for it, a whole language sprung up about how women were the most natural people to do factory work, creating weapons for the war, because their knitting together munitions was just like sewing together a dress. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen how what we think of as essential and eternal often is much more about what it is convenient to believe about one gender Mm -hmm. or another in a certain context. Right. How, How does that operate in terms of the parenting question? First, I want to say that we should definitely have Ruth Milkman as a guest on our podcast soon. Um, but also, um, Yeah, I mean, we've seen this valorization of what women are supposedly good at a lot. I've talked about it before on this podcast in terms of teaching and possibly, I don't know if I actually mentioned it in the context of nursing, but it certainly is. Again, these are care is seen as a thing that women are naturally good at. Occasionally doing small tasks with your fingers is a thing that women are naturally good at. You can talk about that in terms of women making your iPod and iPhone. Um, But when it comes to this justification being used for unpaid work, it's even slightly more pernicious, right? Because it's the idea here is not just that you will be naturally good at this job. And so this is what you should do for your paid work, but it's that you will just naturally take pleasure in doing this thing. And thus you will want to do it, whether or not you get paid this people have people um, like Janet Gornick, who I interviewed for this piece, um, like Nancy Fulbray, who writes at the New York times, sometimes a feminist economist, they have pointed out that this valorization of a certain kind of work for women has actually led to those women being paid less um, in terms of things like domestic work, paid care work, nursing, teaching. Um, The idea that we do this because we're naturally good at it and because we naturally enjoy it is also one that, that strikes me because I'm a woman who is not particularly interested in having children. I 
feel completely left out of these conversations because I don't actually take pleasure in these things any more than I take pleasure in doing math. Um, and so there are a lot of people, not just because there are a lot of people like me, but that like actually studies have shown that taking care of children is no more naturally pleasurable to women than scrubbing floors. And that actually one study that I quote in this piece interestingly found that the people who actually get the most boost in their happiness, which is admittedly a rough thing to try to rate, are fathers, not mothers. Um, which of course is linked possibly to the fact that women end up doing most of that work. Funny how that works out. Weird. You also argue that this is tied to the construction of women and mothers as consumers. That the only place where there's a space for taking care of children to be portrayed as difficult and arduous and unpleasant is in the context of the parent as a consumer who needs to buy some kind of product to make it easier. Yeah, so there was a really interesting... So I started writing this piece before this um, cover story in Time about being child-free and before this um, big story in the New York Times Magazine about the opt-out generation wanting to opt back into the workplace. These are women who, quote-unquote, opted out of being high-paid workers and opted into being a mommy instead. Um, and that I use the term mommy specifically because that's really how this is sold to us. Um, and so this point that I made comes from a woman who is a web designer who works on e-commerce sites targeting mothers, and she calls it the mommy industry. And this is in the Time story on being child-free. Um, she's an African-American woman who is talking about the different expectations for her as an African-American woman, but she's also talking about the fact that I'm going to actually read you the quote. It says, before there was a mommy industry, before there was product to move, you'd never hear how it, it being motherhood, raising children, um, was the hardest job in the world. If it's the hardest job in the world, I'm damn happy I don't have to do it. And when you think about that, when you think about the way that this is being sold to women, and it's really interesting that the sort of pressure on the certain kind of parenting went up particularly in the sort of pre-recession, the late 90s and the 2000s, when women's presence in the workforce was at, um, well, actually now it's at its peak, but when it was going up and it was in a way sort of more threatening to men, what's been interesting post-recession, of course, that has been sort of talked to death, is that more women became the primary breadwinner in their family because a lot of men lost their jobs, although that trend has reversed because now women are not being hired back as quickly as men who are in some ways moving into female-dominated industries more. Anyway, that's a whole other hour of the podcast that actually might be an interesting show to do someday. But um, Stay tuned. So Angela Davis, who I quote many times in this piece because Angela Davis has already written everything that I want to write, um, points out that capitalism has always depended on the unpaid labor of women within the home, not just the unpaid actual work that they do, scrubbing floors and raising and feeding children and doing the shopping and doing all sorts and doing the laundry and anything else, but also the emotional labor that women do in the home, right? And so what's even more interesting is to see the idea of this sort of industry growing up to provide products to soothe the needs of those women who are then doing all of this unpaid labor in the home. And as I commented, um, this ends up being a win-win for capital because you are both spending money on things and doing a bunch of unpaid work. And so what does this mean for 
liberal politics around moms, whether you're talking about someone like Nancy Pelosi talking about being a mother and a grandmother and so knowing how to clean up after George Bush or labor-backed groups like Moms Rising that are arguing for, often for good work-family politics from a a mom-colored perspective. What, What do you make of that? So I always sort of suck my teeth, and you might have heard me do it just then, when people like Nancy Pelosi sort of talk, use those same sort of naturalized stereotypes about women to talk about their fitness for office. We should have more women in office because it's generations and generations of sexism that have kept women out of office, not because women are going to be naturally better at at cleaning up messes or more peaceful or any other ridiculous argument that we have made because I don't know if any of you have heard of Margaret Thatcher. Anyway, um, so that argument aside, I really really don't like that. Um, Moms Rising, the group, does excellent work. I talked to many of them while um, the paid sick days fight here in New York was happening. I think it's very important to point out that a lot of these issues like paid sick time are very gendered in that they will help women more because women are doing more of this work in the home. But it's also important to not naturalize the idea that women should and always will do more of this work in the home. I saw and did not get a chance to read it yet this morning, Bryce Covert, who does an excellent, excellent job covering issues of work-family balance, of, of women's place in the broader economy, tweet something about men who work in female-dominated jobs also do more of the housework. And that's a really interesting point that I would love to look into more. Um, We really need to challenge the idea that these things are natural for women because, as I said just a few minutes ago, that idea leads to women being paid less to do them. And also because there are plenty of women who don't like to do them. This goes to... We've talked in the past about this question of a politics about dignifying work and celebrating work, particularly on the left, versus a politics of escaping work, or at least boxing in the amount of our lives that's controlled by work. I like that phrasing. That's really good. (laughs) Part of what you're talking about is reclaiming an idea of leisure, or choosing not to produce for a period of time as something that should not be scorned, even if you're not rich. Yeah. What would that look like? What What would, to start with, what would need to change on the left in order to get there? Well, I want to start by challenging the definition of work as production, right? When we're talking about specifically unpaid work in the home, again, Angela Davis has pointed out many times, and the women of the Wages for Housework movement have pointed out. Um, but specifically, I'm going to go back to Angela Davis's argument, which is that the quote-unquote productive work that women used to do in the home in earlier days was sort of systematically taken out of the home and industrialized. And women were left with purely what we call reproductive labor, which is just the labor of taking care of humans, of reproducing the next generation. Um, And so we don't want to argue that that's not work. In fact, I want to argue very much that that is work and that you know whether or not we're going to retake up the wages for housework demand, we do need to be aware that this is work. And so partly what I'm, why I'm arguing that we need a specifically gendered demand for leisure time is that we need to argue that taking care of the kids is still work. 
that taking care of the house is still work. You know, one of the big problems is that women tend to work more part-time jobs. Women tend to work fewer hours. Female-dominated jobs have fewer hours. Male-dominated jobs tend to work overtime. These are other things that I've written about at various times in different pieces. Um, what we have then is women are being paid less, once again, because they're working fewer hours to be paid by. They're working part-time jobs, pay less part-time jobs. Um, as Janet Gornick points out in this piece, there are very few sort of high-quality part-time jobs available. That's just not a thing we think about in this country. And we've talked about this in, re in reference to Walmart and the fast food strikes, too. And so what we need to argue is that like those shorter hours in the paid workplace don't necessarily mean that women are working fewer hours and that women have all this free time. One of the interesting things about these very, you know, elite mothers in this Times piece on the opt-out generation is that their husbands, almost to a man, were derisive of the work that these women were doing while they were at home. Um, it was, you know, it was something to see. Bryce wrote a good piece about just reacting to that part of it at the nation. In the intersectional piece here, the way that there's an interplay between gender and race and class, I think about, as you referenced, the welfare reform debate oh, and yeah. this delicious moment in the 2012 campaign when first the Romney campaign wanted to go after non-leftist Hillary Rosen for making a reference to Ann Romney not having done real work and then the folks at Chris Hayes' show pointed out that in fact Mitt Romney had talked about the utter importance of poor women on welfare getting the experience of going out and doing work how, how does that play out around these questions? I mean I sort of have to say up front that I feel like family policy and the way we talk about family policy is something that should be thought of in a trickle-up manner, not a trickle-down manner, as in we are not in this to solve the problems of the Ann Romneys of the world. I don't really care about the Ann Romneys of the world, I'm sorry. Um, I care about the women who work at Walmart who can't afford to both go to their job and to have childcare. I care about the women who are doing the childcare for very low wages, as we talked about last week. Um, and the policies that we argue for in the course of this piece, many of which I took from Janet Gornick, who is a family policy expert, are policies that would help, as she says, low-wage women the most. I bring up the welfare reform debate. Actually, I quote um, Tressie McMillan Cottom talking about the welfare reform debate because it's interesting to see the way family policy is sort of thought of as a thing that is done for women who are more like Ann Romney or the women in this opt-out, opt-in piece. And she points out that it things like welfare reform meanwhile are enacted sort of on the bodies of women of color even though most of the women who are on welfare were not actually women of color the stereotype is that they are and that's an interesting thing that women of color have to fight particularly black women have to fight the idea that if they are staying home to take care of their children or working fewer hours to take care of their children, that they're lazy, which is pretty ironic considering that this country is built on hundreds of years of, among other things, black women's unpaid labor. <laughs> I can't really get over the fact that any white person in this country has the gall to ever talk about black people being lazy. <laughs> and in any case, um, so welfare reform, which 
Bill Clinton gave us, gee thanks, was predicated upon pushing these women into the workforce, largely into the low-paid workforce, because they did not have quote-unquote skills. We know that that is, of course, a lie. Um, And what that did, which I mentioned briefly last week, is help create this other workforce of low-paid women who are caring for the children of other low-paid women, um, creating a cycle of women who make very little money and who are constantly beaten up for having very little money by Republican politicians like Mitt Romney. When we talk about trying to politicize leisure, you have to deal with all of these issues and all of these stereotypes, right? Well, the argument of the movement for welfare benefits was that what we do is work. It was, you know, in a way, it's a thing that I've wanted to go back and and read about a lot more because it is, in a lot of ways, the next logical step from the Wages for Housework movement, right? Welfare benefits were the only time we have ever actually paid wages for housework. And you also make reference to the lack of reference, generally, to people who are not heterosexuals, to (laughs) those of us who may end up if we build a home with someone of the same sex, with someone of the opposite sex, and as belabored listeners know, there is real debate about whether the movement for equality for those of us who are queer people is one that should make as little modification as possible to existing institutions in order to slot queer people into them, or one that should actually be an opportunity to question some of the existing assumptions within these institutions and some of the conservative aspects of these institutions. Do you see any potential in that space around changing the way that we look at these issues or these roles? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the centrality of marriage to the the mainstream, at least, gay rights movement in recent years. Um, And I did find that interesting when I was reading again from this piece in time um, Nancy I'm, it, I believe it's Mezzi? I'm not sure, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name is the author of a book about lesbian motherhood and she told the reporter at time that the cultural pressure of motherhood is really starting to come down on queer women as well um, that this sort of normative idea of what women should be doing you used to sort of escape it in away because you were so far outside of what society could consider as normal. And now we see if we're seeing queer women, especially facing this pressure. Um, and you see it, you know, the flip side of that is the stereotypes of gay men being never wanting to settle down into a relationship and just have sex with everybody forever. And, and the idea of, of them probably being bad parents, as opposed to lesbians who are automatically going to be amazing parents. Cause ladies, um, That's really interesting, and that's an interesting consequence to think of when we think about things like marriage equality, and particularly some of the arguments made around marriage equality, which are basically like, you know, we're just like you, and we want our white picket fence and 2.5 kids, and again, this is really, really classed. The conversation around marriage is really, really classed, once again. Um... I think Yasmin Nair has pointed out that um, Edie Windsor, the woman whose lawsuit went before the court to overturn DOMA, Edie Windsor is a very, very rich woman who is essentially complaining about having to pay her estate tax. Um, When we talk about all of this, 
it's just opening up a whole other bunch of questions about stereotypes and ideas of who people are and what they want and what they're good at and what they're bad at that we should all be really nervous about messing with because they're really pernicious and hard to fight. Fascinating questions. Again, the piece is opting for free time at In These Times. They sleep on technique, so I bless these beasts. And I ain't even gotta explain how stressed I be. Life ain't perfect, but it's all worth it. So systematic, be part of that circuit, robotic at work when I'm This brings us to the end of the podcast, where as longtime listeners of Descent's belabored podcast will know, we say, Arg! I wish I had written that. Sarah, if your city were sinking into the sea and you had no oh, joke, you almost would, did this year. You would no longer be able to live on land. Water was overtaking the earth, and you had to build an ark out of pure resentment of something that someone else had written. What would that something else be? So it's actually related to the topic that we were just discussing. Um, I was struck this week by a piece at Women's E-News by Christina Caldwell, and I, I wanted to and sort of didn't manage to work it into this, a reference to it into this piece. Um, it's a piece that you might be surprised that I'm bringing up on a labor podcast. It's about the quote-unquote Saturday women at one of the few abortion clinics that is still open in the state of Alabama. The clinic is swamped on Saturdays, largely because most of the people who are coming to this clinic are working-class women who have very little paid sick time or any sort of flexible hours at work. Um, it was a whole other way to look at this argument around work-life balance, around the idea of family policy, about family planning, that I had not really thought of in that way, that I, you know, I think about things like access to care to all sorts of family care. Um, we talk about employers who don't want to pay for birth control as part of the new health insurance mandate. Um, employers, of course, who don't provide any sort of paid maternity leave um, other than the federally mandated unpaid leave, paid sick time, any sort of flexible hours. But I had never really seen anyone discuss abortion access in terms of workplace flexibility. And... Right. Once again, when you think about this, it, it seems to make sense. Um, and of course, Saturday is when all of the protesters are there making this, again, bringing up yet another barrier to access for a lot of people who don't want to be shamed. And if you think about the shame context broadly, it's very hard to ask your boss to take some time off because you need to go schedule an abortion. If you have the kind of boss who is going to want a doctor's note, that is not the doctor's note you necessarily want to bring to your boss particularly in states like Alabama, where a lot of people are hostile to abortion rights. So as we're talking about family and about stereotypes of women and what they want, as we're talking about class and access to health care, as we're talking about the right to choose not to have children or want to have children, um, I think that this piece is, was really important and I, you know, wanted to actually really situate it in a labor context. Um, the piece is called Abortion Hits, Hits Alabama Saturday Women, and of course we'll have the link at Descent's website. Stephen Greenhouse, the outstanding labor reporter at the New York Times, had a long and important feature called the Workers' Defense Project, A Union in Spirit. This was a look at 
a worker center, what you could call an alt-labor group in Texas in the construction industry that touched on a few of the themes that I think are fascinating about these organizations that we have seen spread up around the country organizing and mobilizing workers without seeking or having collective bargaining. One interesting thread in this article is the relation to the law. Something that surprised me when I started reporting on these groups was to realize the extent to which most of them, even though they're not using collective bargaining law, are often reliant on legal enforcement as one of their weapons against companies. And so the rampant illegality that we see in many non-union workplaces cuts in various ways here. On the one hand, it often provides an opening for groups, including this Workers' Defense Project in Texas, to pick up legal enforcement as a cudgel against a company. And Greenhouse writes about the use of putting liens on construction projects as a way to hurt these companies that are hurting their workers. On the other hand, these groups are often stuck finding themselves claiming victory for enforcing the very low existing legal standard rather than completely transforming the industry and creating what are commonly called middle-class jobs. Another thread that's very interesting here is the relation between this group and immigration. And longtime listeners of the podcast will know that the center of gravity for unions has shifted on immigration. It is fair to say that construction industry unions have not been at the forefront of the progressive shift on immigration. And as Greenhouse writes, understandably, many of the immigrant workers who've gotten involved in the Workers' Defense Project saw one of the benefits of their involvement there as the fact that this was not a union that had the kind of anti-immigrant attitude that, rightly or wrongly, they believed the unions that theoretically they could have been part of in that industry in Texas to have. He also writes about the soul-searching within Texas construction unions, talks to one official who says, essentially, we always complain about them taking our jobs, and now they have our jobs, but since they have our jobs anyway, it would be better for our standards if they weren't getting killed so often while doing, again, his words, our jobs. And so the wrestling within the labor movement about immigration and this tension between equality and exclusion comes into contact here with this rustling about what you do to raise standards in the absence of robust labor law in the United States. So it's a fascinating read and an important one, especially at a moment when the right has mounted a concerted attack against workers' centers like the ones that Steve Greenhouse is writing about. That brings us to the end of the 19th episode of the Belabored Podcast, produced by our outstanding producer, Natasha Lewis. We love Natasha very much. We will be back next week, I'm sure, with more fun and exciting and stimulating talk about labor. Tweet at us with your suggestions for explainers you might want us to do, um, suggestions for guests, responses, ideas, anything you think that we should hear. Um, Hashtag belabored on Twitter. Let us know what you think. We'll see you next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twin and five, hell nah, we can't go. society has enslaved me and it's crazy. Cause daily it gets hard.